the Holy Spirit has been moving mightily among the believers in Jerusalem. The apostles perform many miracles and the believers meet in the temple precincts under what's called Solomon's Colonnade and more and more believers are added every day. The problem is all this has definitely caught the attention of the religious leaders and Peter and John have already been thrown into prison once. They were only held overnight, but they were cautioned to lay low and not preach in Jesus' name. <laughs> well, that isn't happening. Those apostles keep right on preaching, and the people bring all their sick and injured from around Jerusalem, believing that even if just Peter's shadow touches them, they will be healed. And they are. The high priest and the Sadducees who run the temple aren't going to stand for this. So they have the apostles arrested and thrown into jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord rescues the apostles and tells them, go, take a stand in the temple, speak the words of life to the people. I love how this particular illustrator doesn't put wings on those angels. The angels look like they're supposed to look. This is a good picture. When the day dawns, the high priest and Sadducees arrive at work, and they call for the entire Sanhedrin, planning to put the jailed apostles on trial. But when they go for the apostles, the soldiers come back and tell them the jail was shut securely, and the guards were standing at the doors, but when we opened the doors, we found no one. Just then, someone runs in saying, hey, those men you put in jail last night are out in the temple preaching to the people. The captain and his officers scurry out to bring the apostles to the high priest. But the soldiers have to be careful to make it look like they're just escorting the apostles to a meeting. Otherwise, they're afraid the people will stone them. The apostles stand before the Sanhedrin. The high priest says, we ordered you not to teach in this name, but you have ignored us. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You are trying to bring the blood of this man down upon us. But the apostles reply, we must obey God, not man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus up after you crucified him. God exalted him as leader and savior at his right hand in order to bestow upon Israel repentance and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to this, and so is the Holy Spirit that God has given to those following him. Well, that tears it. The Sanhedrin explodes in anger. The leaders call for the apostles to be put to death. Just then, a Pharisee stands up. His name is Gamaliel. He is the grandson of the great Hillel, who could be called the father of, of the Talmud, revered Jewish writings that are central to their faith, even in our modern day. Hillel was an unparalleled Jewish scholar who lived during the reign of Herod the Great, and he was the founder of the great school of Hillel. Gamaliel, his grandson, is called Nasi, a special title, which actually means prince. He is now the revered head of the Sanhedrin and is a great scholar in his own right. When he speaks, even the high priest shuts up and listens. Gamaliel orders the apostles to be put outside the room for the moment. Then he says, men of Israel, get a hold of yourselves. Think about what you're about to do with these men. Remember Theodos and the 400 men following him? He died and it all came to nothing in the end. And after him, was Judas the Galilean. He also died and his followers were scattered. So I urge you, leave these men alone. If their work is of man, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, 
you will not be able to fight him. Well, those are very wise words. So rather than killing the apostles, the Sanhedrin has them flogged. Again, they order the apostles to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. The apostles leave their floggings with joy in their hearts for being considered worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And they go right back to the temple courts and even start going house to house, teaching constantly and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. As you know, the believers have been pooling all their resources and sharing everything. Many of the new believers living there in Jerusalem are what's called Hellenistic Jews, which means they're not native to Palestine, and Greek is their native language rather than Aramaic or Hebrew, and their customs are different. And these Hellenistic Jews are feeling as if they're being treated like second-class citizens among the believers. The Hellenistic widows are being regularly overlooked in the daily food ministry. So the 12 apostles gather all the disciples together and say, this whole waiting of tables thing is getting to be too much for us. And it's not really the best use of our time. You guys pick seven respected men whom you know are full of the spirit and of wisdom. And we will turn the food ministry over to them while we focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. That makes sense to everyone. So they choose seven men and bring them to the apostles. The apostles pray and then lay their hands on the seven. And so the word of God spreads and the community grows and grows. Many of the temple priests even become believers. So one of the seven respected men who was appointed to the food ministry is a man named Stephen. He is full of grace and power. And even though he is not one of the original apostles, he does many miracles among the people. But he runs into trouble with a synagogue called the Freedmen. These are Jews from Cyrene on the northern African coast, from the great city of Alexandria in Egypt, and from all over Cilicia and Asia, what we would call Asia Minor nowadays. So this is a very important synagogue of Hellenistic Jews, and we don't know why they're so upset with Stephen. There's no hint in the story, but boy, are they. they these freedmen get into arguments with Stephen, but they cannot overcome his simple wisdom and the words the Spirit gives him. So the freedmen talked to some other men and talked them into claiming they'd heard Stephen blaspheming both Moses and God. They also go gossiping to the people and the religious leaders and the scribes until finally they've made enough smoke that Stephen gets arrested and put on trial by the Sanhedrin. They get false witnesses liars, to say that Stephen is always speaking against the temple and the law, and that he says Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and will change the customs handed down by Moses. But Stephen is serene through it all. The high priest asked him, are these things true? And Stephen answers, brothers, fathers, Listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham in Mesopotamia and said, Leave your country and your kindred and come to the land I will show you. And so Abraham left his home, Ur, in the land of the Chaldeans and traveled to Haran, where he stayed until his father died. Then he left Haran and migrated here to this very land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even so much as a foot. But God did make him a promise. 
that he and his descendants would possess this land, even though Abraham was very old and had no son at all. God told Abraham, your descendants will be strangers in a strange land, enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that enslaves them, and they will come forth and will serve me here in this place. And then God gave Abraham the covenant, the promise of circumcision. And Abraham fathered Isaac and circumcised him. Isaac fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered the 12 tribes of Israel, the patriarchs. But the patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph. And they sold him to Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him from all his tribulations and gave him grace and wisdom before the Pharaoh of Egypt. And Pharaoh appointed Joseph over Egypt and over his own household. Then came a terrible famine that reached as far as this very land. Jacob, here, heard that there was grain in Egypt and sent Joseph's brothers there to get food. On their second trip to Egypt, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and they even met the Pharaoh. Joseph then brought his father Jacob and all the rest of his family to be with him in Egypt. But eventually, his father Jacob died, and Joseph traveled to Shechem, here in this land, to bury him in the tomb of Abraham. Finally, the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Many years had passed, and the people had multiplied greatly. A new king who knew nothing about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with us and mistreated our fathers forcing them to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. It was during this time that Moses was born. He was beautiful to God, and for three months he was nourished in his father's home. When he had to be abandoned, the daughter of Pharaoh found him and brought him up as her own child. And he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and became powerful in both his words and his deeds. Finally, when Moses was 40 years old, it occurred to him to look in on his fellow Israelites. He was enraged when he saw one of them being abused and Moses came to his defense striking down the Egyptian in revenge. Moses thought surely his brethren would understand that God was defending them through him. But they did not understand. The next day, Moses urged two Israelites who were quarreling to be at peace, saying, Men, you are my brothers, so why do you injure each other? And the attacker pushed him away saying, who made you the boss of us? Who are you to judge? Why don't you kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Oh, when Moses heard this, he knew he was in trouble. He fled from Egypt and went into exile in Midian, where he settled and had two sons. Then one day, after he'd been in Midian 40 years, Moses is now 80. An angel appeared to Moses in a blazing bush. Moses was amazed at this. And as he drew near, the voice of the Lord said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Moses was so terrified he dare not even look. The Lord said, Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have seen the abuse of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans, and I have come down to deliver them. Come on, I will send you to Egypt. This very Moses, the Israelites rejected. The one that they said, who made you ruler and judge over us? This is the one God sent as ruler and liberator. He is the one who did many signs and wonders, leading them out of Egypt, leading them through the Dead Sea, and leading them for 40 more years in the wilderness. This very Moses is the one who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you from among your brethren a prophet like me. This is the one with them in the wilderness, the one the angel spoke to on Mount Sinai, the one who received living words, the law, to give to us. This is the same one our fathers rejected, unwilling to listen to him when they yearned for Egypt and when they assumed Moses had died up there on Mount Sinai, they are the ones who told Aaron, his brother, to make other gods for them. And they made a golden calf and offered sacrifices to this idol and celebrated the work of their own hands. And God turned away and handed them over to worship the sun and the moon and the stars. As the prophets wrote, did you offer me sacrifices those 40 years in the wilderness? No, you took up the tabernacle of the despised Molech who demanded child sacrifice and you worshiped idols you made with your own hands. Therefore, I will exile you beyond Babylon. The witness of the tabernacle was with our fathers in the wilderness made exactly according to the pattern God had shown Moses. This is the tabernacle our fathers brought with Joshua when they took possession of this land left by the nations God drove out ahead of them. And we kept this land until the days of David. King David found favor with God and asked to build a more permanent dwelling place for God. But it was his son, Solomon, who built the temple. Nevertheless, the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house could you build me? Where is my resting place? Am I not the maker of all these things? Then Stephen addresses the Sanhedrin directly. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised of heart and ears. You always strive against the Holy Spirit, just like your fathers. Which of the prophets did your fathers fail to persecute? They killed the prophets who foretold the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law through the angels, but you have not kept it. At this, the members of the Sanhedrin begin gnashing their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looks to heaven and sees the glory of God and of Jesus. And he says, look. I see the heavens have been opened up completely and the son of man is standing at the right hand of God. The men of the Sanhedrin shout and cover their ears and cast Stephen out of the city where they begin to stone him and those stoning him take off their cloaks and lay them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they stone him, Stephen cries out, Lord Jesus, Receive my 
Spirit, do not lay this sin on their shoulders. And with that, Stephen falls asleep. As I reflected on this lesson, it struck me that there was a consistent juxtaposition of our sufferings and trauma with God's blessing and presence. And I thought it might be interesting to look at the sequence of blessing and trauma and see if we see any patterns. All right, looks like looks like everybody is mostly here. Who got cut off in mid-sentence? <laughs> Julia did in our group. Oh, okay. Julia, I was asking who got cut off in mid-sentence. Me. Well, what I was, and, and to use a cliche, I think what I was getting at is without the trauma, without the rain, you will not necessarily appreciate the rainbow, the sunny day, the nice day that's 72 degrees with no breeze and you just it's you'll appreciate it the first one or two days but then you take it for granted but then you get a breeze or a, or a rainy day or a cloudy day and you wish it was something else you know so trauma helps us in some ways to be able to identify with this is the far end of the spectrum, how can we get to the other end? How can we use that for something positive? And I think the Holy Spirit in us is how we get there. What were y'all's observations um, about what did you see in this? In this, did you see a pattern? Well, at first we were concentrating. Uh oh, I think Ann's trying to speak, but her mic's not on. Anyway, first we were concentrating on the tribulations and then the good things that came out through the tribulations. But what we realized through that is um, that not everything on there was necessarily a tribulation, that there were, you know, blessings and stuff. And we kind of came to the conclusion that God's consistent, that he's there through the good, the bad, and the ugly, and um, that he blesses regardless of what was in column A. Column B was a blessing. So God's consistent. Very interesting. Is that what both groups came up with? Oh, go ahead, Joe. Well, I just jumped and I said at the top of my study guide, and it's the reading teacher thing that, you know, when things are in a title or a bullet, you look. And at the top of mine was the um, scripture from last week from Peter. And I think that and no can matter. Can you tell us that, that scripture? Um, yes, um, it is. There's no salvation, healing, wholeness, prosperity, and safety in anyone else. There's not another human or another name under the heaven given to mankind that makes it a requirement and necessity to be saved, to be made whole and well and safe. And the well and safe is what stuck with me, that even, even in darkest times, we should have faith that God's with us. That the purpose is wholeness and wellness. Yes. Yes. And another thing someone in our group pointed out was God wasn't the one causing these traumas necessarily. The traumas occurred and God provided a pathway to a positive result through that. He used the negative. He didn't necessarily create the negative nor did anybody necessarily like the famine that wasn't anybody's um creation mm -hmm. that was an a, a thing that happened but 
through that famine and through the blessing of Egypt having food, then Joseph was able to save the family tribe of Israel. And with what had happened in his troubles, he had gained the wisdom and the goodwill. So he had a ministry right there to not only the people who had harmed him initially, but to the entirety of that nation. Well, yeah, to all of the nations around them, that people yes. people flocked to Egypt at that time. Egypt saved the known world at that time because of that foresight. But I, I thought it was really interesting that in Stephen's, these are bullet points mostly from Stephen's speech. And it was, I, I just now realized that when Stephen picked out the traumas that were the ones to bullet point in his like famous last words speech, the last thing you're going to say before you know you're going to get executed. The traumas that he picked out to talk about were not trauma that the nation had brought on themselves from trusting in other gods or trusting right. in other nations or from their own waywardness. And they had plenty of that kind of trauma. I mean, if you think about how the nations fell and Jezebel and all the horrible things that have happened all through their history, he didn't mention not one of those because those were apparently not the important things. It was these things that were on here that were important. The trauma of being held in slavery against your will, the trauma of being arrested and flogged and jailed against your will, the trauma of being, you know, let left to die as a baby. It is interesting. We we talked about this a little bit, that it is interesting that in the middle of all of this, these things that all seem connected and make sense he drops in the circumcision piece. Yeah, I wondered about that. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, you know, I, I have been taught that it basically, you know, because it's such a visible thing, um, people would know that, that the men of Israel were different because they were circumcised. Um, but Brian pointed out, yeah, but the women didn't have any sign like that. You know, again, once again, the women were left out. Um, but that sort of plopping in the middle and the fact that even today, the Jewish people um, practice circumcision, even though that's a common practice now in the culture, for the Jewish people who practice the Jewish religion, um, it is still a religious right to circumcise the baby boys. Um, but it seems like a weird thing for Stephen to drop into the middle of this whole list of, as you say, things happened to the people and then God brought good or brought blessing out of it. Um, and then the story is concluded with, you know, and in the end, they still stoned Stephen after he basically schooled the entire Sanhedrin and 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 everybody that was present. But that mentioned that Saul was the one standing there, that they put their coats at his feet. And then we know that Saul was Paul and how he then brought the Christian faith to the Gentiles. Um, so we see the good that's going to come from that. But why is circumcision dropped in the middle of that? Martha, Martha has a, Martha has a comment. Oh, go for it. Um, so the thing that the circumcision has in common with many, but not all of the right hand column, which is labeled the results is that Oftentimes the result is from, is an action by or a result of an action from people. Collectively? But, say it again. Collectively? Or individually. So, for example, Joseph and his response and 
um, Pharaoh's daughter and her response. So sometimes individually, sometimes collectively, not always is what's in that right-hand column. Um, for example, the Jesus raised and exalted, the result is giving and bestowing and granting repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That's not of our doing, but so much of that right-hand column is about the answer to the question you asked, which was, how does this inform our walk? It's, it's what's expected of us. We are expected to see the need, to see the trauma, and to, to respond. And God works through us. So in the circumcision, it's, it is a response of the people. So that's why did he choose that one? Not completely sure, but what it has in common is that it is people's response. Yeah. Well, and I think that the whole circumcision question is a really good one. Um, because I see, I'm, I'm wondering, I see what, a lot of promises now that, now that she said that I see a lot of pro- promises in the left-hand column. Ah, tell, talk to us about that. But I want to get back to circumcision, but talk to us about that. Oh, go ahead about the circumcision. Well, hold your thought. Okay. I want, okay. To, I want to talk about that well, too. Okay. So power of Holy Spirit. I mean, in everything, what is the Holy Spirit doing with us? I mean, you have the result over there, but the Jesus killed and raised, that was, you know, a promise. Um, you know, those who believe are rich. Um, the, the angel is part of a promise that, you know, we won't forget you. The land of Israel, it's a promise. Um, the, the thing about the covenant of circumcision, and I had always learned this too, is that it was um, very much, well, like you put it, that we're God's people and God's our God. I mean, that's how we're showing what we've got. I just, I see promise in the, in the, um, famine in Palestine, but Egypt having food. I mean, they're all things like if you turn away from me, these are things that happen. And if you, but we still see some people who have trauma that are believers. But I just see promises written over the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And promises to keep us well and safe. Yeah. And, and if you, if we, if you look, I, I see the timelines vary with the result. Sometimes they're immediate, like when the believers, when the rich ones among the believers share the, the, the result is immediate that day. For some of the other promises, it was 400 years. For some of Moses's things, it was 40 years, 80 years, 120 years. It was all different timelines because God does not is not bound by our linear conception of time. These promises are now and forever and always. Whenever that is, they're still true in this moment. And we can take them to the bank. But I want to get back to the circumcision thing, because I think this is actually really important. Um, Back when this happened with between God and Abraham, God told Abraham, you, um, we're going to make a cut. We're going to cut a covenant. That's the word. You're going to, we're going to cut the covenant. And I want you to just do all the things that are normal for your, for your culture to do a solemn treaty type covenant. Like a not, this is not a pinky promise. This is a big deal covenant. And, and so Abraham had to work all day. He had to, slaughter animals, cut them in half, lay the two halves along the side. There was this whole big thing. And the way it would work is both parties would walk between the animals to meet and make their agreement, symbolically saying, if I don't keep this, may this happen to me. May I be cut in two? That's kind of the symbolism there. But when the time came to cut the covenant after Abraham had laid out all the preparations, God put Abraham into a deep sleep. And God was the only one who walked the covenant. 
and he walked through it himself. And the only, so God was taking both sides of the covenant at that point. And the only thing Abraham was asked to physically do was to circumcise himself and his descendants. So what does, if we put ourselves in the place of the, of Abraham back then and the Jews going forward, what does the circumcision of Abraham's body, the cutting of the foreskin mean? Is it a meaningful act? What does it mean? What does it mean to Abraham and what does it mean to God? I don't really think about circumcision that much. Well, that's why we're doing it. <laughs> the, the, I, mean, I did re- when when my firstborn was born, I did not circumcise him in the hospital. I waited till he was a month old because I didn't want to traumatize his birth experience. He still talks to me about that to this day. But it was where I was. I didn't want his birth to be traumatic to him. Mm-hmm. So I waited until it was just a trauma on its own. <laughs> Pretty great mom of the year, that right there. <laughs> <laughs> so what okay. do you think? I have a, a question to follow up on what Julia just said. Why is it that it became commonplace for every, I mean, my brother was circumcised. So, even though you're not Jewish, even though we're not Jewish, my my mom Marlene really, can answer this one. Okay, yeah, I have I have an answer for you. It was believed, and and there's there's more and more. It's it's becoming a more controversial practice, actually. But it was believed that. Um, by removing the foreskin, you were able to have better hygiene that mm-hmm. would reduce the risk of certain infections. And also they believe that it would reduce the risk of certain kinds of cancer in that area. Um, and infections involving your partner. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, um, um, that's probably more recent. disease, you know, all of those kinds of things. It was seen as a hygiene and health thing and and that's why it became common practice outside of the Jewish community but um I'm reading more and more that research is indicating that 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 theory does not hold up with statistics and so more and more people are opting not to have their children circumcised and the only time that that can become problematic is occasionally there will be scarring of the foreskin or something that creates a problem but that's the exception rather than the rule. So if uh, we go back to what what it meant it, to, religiously, theologically, what it what it meant between God and the person being circumcised, what does it mean in the context of this covenant where God already took both sides? I think it's our side of promise to God. Mm-hmm. that we yeah. will do the extreme and be his. And does it, what, what other reasons? It, I, I'm, it's a mark in our body. And I re, I'm reminded of other things that God told the, in the, in the law that got that through Moses, God told these people to also do to remind themselves daily of God. Remember their armbands, the phylacteries, and the, you know, write it on your forehead, write it on your hands, Mm. talk to it about, talk about me to your children every day, when you walk, when you get up, when you lay down. Well, it's an interesting thing that, you know, I mean, yeah, this is a permanent reminder. Every time a man, you know, would take a bath, go to the bathroom, change clothes, um, he would see that. Um. And and we know that women mattered to God, but again, it's one of these things that culturally, all of these these directions are for the men. Yeah. 
And also this was a, you bring, that's a great, that's one of our favorite words here in this class, culturally, um, <laughs> that circumcision was a thing back in these days. It wasn't just the Jews. So it was a known thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I find it interesting because in the New Testament, um, is that the apostles talk negatively about circumcision. Yeah, well, we're we're going to get to things that that Paul says and dissect them. We're going to have so much fun, okay. with Paul, when we get there. Well, <laughs> but I want to stay but, back in in the context of the Hebrew Bible for the moment. So, is this us? Um, making covenant. Eh, never mind, I lost my thought. <laughs> we can't we can't make the covenant because God already did it for us. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think is this? as Christians is we need to remember that we too are connected to the Hebrew Bible. That Christ was a Jew, that our religion grew out of Judaism. It's a fulfillment of promises and we're the new era of that we label ourselves christians but we still maintain that covenant with god mm-hmm. i just i just uh, and a modern day example a metaphor just popped into my head when you get married you give each other wedding rings generally yes. speaking is the wedding ring the marriage no the, the marriage already happened. What is that wedding ring? It's a symbol to each other. It's and to everybody else. And to everybody else. To you and to everybody. It's just a symbol of that commitment. When my husband sees my me wearing my wedding ring, he sees me daily affirming my pledge to him. Right. Faithfulness. Is that what circumcision is? Possibly. I think we. it's easy to be tempted to overcomplicate things. And so largely, Gail, I think you're right. It is, let's not overcomplicate this. Um, and then I'm going to do that a little bit and suggest that. So God was on both sides of the covenant. And God says, I'm on both sides of this covenant. I've made this covenant. I'm carrying this covenant. I ask you to remember that. I ask you to experience some suffering and have a reminder of that suffering, which is, uh, and that, that that mark that you suffered is actually a reminder of this covenant. So he's asking, do this one thing. Yes, it's painful. Do this one thing. So it's it's the the small thing I ask you to do to honor this larger thing. If you don't do something, why did I make a covenant? Why was I on both sides of the covenant? You have to show me. I need to know you're in. But and, something I don't understand about it makes sense, but what I don't understand is following after Abraham, most of the circumcisions happened to babies that were less than, you know, what was it, like the seventh day after they were born or something like that. So that doesn't, I mean, it makes sense. If it was, you know, adults, men that were choosing to happen instead of a baby, because a baby can't remember that. Which could get us to why do we, why do some denominations baptize infants and some refuse to baptize infants? It must be a decision made by a a person with conscience. Um, And so it is. It's a statement by the parents who, and it's a statement by community because there's ritual around it. 
Yes. Just like there's ritual and community around baptism. There's a people gather for for the event. And it, and with the Jewish people, a bris is a is a, a communal event. Yes. Yes. So I gotta jump in with something and I'm I'm hoping I'm not gonna embarrass myself by saying this, but I kind of had a aha. I was thinking about the symbols of the wedding ring. Is the cutting symbolic of cutting sin away as God's promise or um I think that for me, if circumcision is part of a covenant and a promise, what does cutting away have to do with it? Right? Yeah, it, seems, it seems like it just as easily could have been a tattoo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that would have been more visible to people. Oh, well, for sure. The Jewish, that about. <laughs> the Jewish faith prohibits tattoos. Yeah, but not not when Abraham was around. Right. That came later. <laughs> and and it's at and I think it's important that it's at the most private, personal, sensitive point of the body. Yeah. True. That Martha said something that struck a chord with me. She said, This is a covenant, and you do this small thing. Anyone who has experienced that which thankfully I have never and especially as an adult or anything it's not a small thing so what makes me think is how enormous is the covenant mm-hmm. you know because that this, this would be token. the symbol of it yes it's just a token I knew I was taking a risk when I referred to it as one small action. <laughs> Easy for you no. to say. <laughs> yeah. I have a thought. I mean, if God did, again, this is, I've missed the most important parts of this Bible study, which is the the beginning 30 lessons. So I know I'm probably saying things that y'all already talked about, but Back in the day, culturally, wasn't um, a big deal for families to have babies to their name, you know, to have a line. The, the line, right? So I'm wondering, as bizarre as it is that God would ask them to do this, I'm wondering if back then culturally, it goes back to what you keep teaching us all the time. Was this a way for a man, a man to humbly like give that one part of their body that is so precious when we're talking about what it means to have babies and to keep that it would be it would I'm thinking if someone tells me to do something to the most precious body part that potentially could have significant repercussions in their birth line that it would have to be an act of faith trust and humility because It'd be easier it's like, yeah, sure, I'll do it in my arm or whatever. It, it might not affect my birth line, but here we are. Potentially, I'm not sure that. Better get a good doctor. Yeah, well, <laughs> and also, it's, 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 it's not only all of those things, but it's on your most precious baby. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's on the baby, too. Yeah. It is on that it is on your seat. It is on that. Right. You know, so it isn't the man is back making... when, you know, hygiene was less of a, you know, known hygiene. thing. It wasn't, there was risk involved in this. Um, and, and so I'm wondering if what this is, in addition, it's this, it's, it's a major thing. It's a major statement by the parents for the child. And it has com- communal um, vibes. It is, you are part of this family. You are part of us. But from the point, from, the, from a theological point, what if it is us acknowledging that God has both sides of this? What if it is that point of humility? That mm. everything about our life, and everything about our future 
is God's. And we are trusting God with it. And if that's the case, what is the equivalent for us now? As women, as men, as Christians, what is the equivalent now after Jesus? How do we acknowledge that God has both sides of the covenant still? Communion? I don't know. That's a big question. Um, Gail, I have a, a rabbit trail I'd like to maybe explore that you may or may not want in the video. Okay, can we, I want to, I want to, that was not a rhetorical question I was asking. I'd like some thought on that first though. Oh, okay. My first thought was communion. But I don't, I'm, I'm wondering what other options. But, yeah. Ahead, Joe. No, I was saying I, I'm, as the first pop didn't mean it was the right pop. What other, what other things come to mind? Well, we don't do a physical mark. Mm-mm. What do we do as Christians? We should be living. What did you say, life, Shirley? Living our lives in such a way that it it reflects Him. How do we enter the Christian community symbolically? Oh, baptism. <laughs> yes, I just said baptism. Yeah, but it's baptism is not something that we see daily. In our bodies. So I do think baptism picks up the community part and the commitment part. Baptism seems to pick up the parent part of the parent equivalent, right? Yes. Of of the act of circumcision. But that child carries that circumcision forward in their body as they grow. And its meaning is imbued to them by their parents. And their community. Otherwise, they wouldn't know that it meant anything. So I'm wondering if baptism is that initial part on the parents, but that how we do the covenant as Christians going forward is by our daily encouragement and interaction with and nurturing of each other, of reminding each other that God's got both sides of this. And that's what I think I was trying to get at by laying it out in a table like this for you. That's a lot like what Shirley said, living the teachings that Jesus brought to us. Yeah. And that doesn't have to be the right answer. That's just, I'm thinking along with you all, and that's where my heart is going. Martha. It it seems like we sort of get off easy compared to (laughs) what was required of of Hebrew boys and men. Martha Martha has some thoughts in her eyes. I'm going to, uh, you can pass me by. Okay. Uh, Anne. I truly believe that circumcision came around, you know, it's the same reason they don't eat seafood and, and pork because of health reasons. And I, I know mm-hmm. in my life, um, at least five guys who are going through terrible trauma for having not been circumcised, same. including the older that men get, the worse it is if they're not circumcised. Mm-hmm. But I, so we'll, we'll go with the theory that, you know, cut the little tip off, although in a place where we don't usually show it, but mm-hmm. as a daily reminder, and maybe the reason that women don't is we have monthly reminders and suffering. Oh, good point. Oh, yeah. That and I was sitting here, I was sitting here thinking, and to your point about um, monthly reminders, that, you know, Jesus was circumcised on what, like the eighth day? So from blood of that to blood of him dying on the cross, 
and then you mentioned this, our monthly reminders, that hmm, maybe maybe the bloodshed has something. I don't know. And I think traditionally women have suffered. You know, whether it whether it be just having to do all the daily duties and having to deal with the children and then the physical suffering. So maybe God said, you know, guys kind of have it easy. So and it it is an important part of a guy's body because it's mm-hmm. thought of often, whereas we don't think about our junk that often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's kind of where I, the rabbit hole I was going to take us down was right. women have a different type, the pain of childbirth. And in that something that comes from Genesis or something. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, and also, but the thing that gets me is, and this is where it gets dicey for me. Back then, men, men handled everything and the women were not quite on equal footing. Not even close. We're still not on equal footing. We're getting there, but it was a different way. It was a different time. And so the men were responsible. Um, I've been married more than once. And I know this doesn't hold for every marriage. But my husband, he feels a strong responsibility to take care of me. My first husband's not so much. <laughs> but he he feels fiscally, health-wise, in every way to take care of me to the best of his ability. And I think if there are men that feel that way, um, I've lost my thought. I'm sorry. It was a good thought at one time. It's just a responsibility to another person and a responsibility to your community to band together in your beliefs. I think that's where I'm I'm just um, trying to, I do want to highlight that there is a theological meaning to circumcision beyond just the physical pain and that it had significance and that I want us to begin to look to see where it is that we remind ourselves on a daily basis that God is God and we are not. And where we remind ourselves on a daily basis that we trust that God has blessings in store for us, even if we're in the middle of trauma that God is working this all for good, no matter what has happened. Um, there are, I think there may be many different ways that we as Christians do this. Baptism obviously is an, is kind of an entry point. Um, I, I mentioned some others and another one that comes to mind is fasting, you know, a weekly fast or a periodic fast where your mind, when you have that hunger pain, it is there to remind you to touch God. Gail, can I can I ask you to indulge me? Sure. I have to have to leave leave. Can you post that question, framing it just slightly in the uh, discussion Facebook mm-hmm. group? What? Do, well, how would you like me to post it? Um, just basically is, um, you know what. What, how do we remind ourselves? How are we reminded? How could we remind ourselves um, of that God's got both sides of the covenant? What's our part in that? But that kind of, I think, is the question. Yeah. Well, I think that question is beautiful because then it it almost has evolved, whereas it seems to be a, a one action when it started with the circumcision. And now it's gives more room for potential um, people to uh, just choose how they want to be reminded, whether it's fasting, whether it's baptism, yes. whether it's wearing a cross, whether it's doing the rosary, whether it's 
um, you know, going to church, whether it's kneeling at a pew, whether it's singing a hymn, like I, I, I do think that feeding the homeless, whatever it is. Yeah. And I, I appreciated that question because before that question I was stuck on, it just seems like, like an outrageous request that it would seem like everybody back then had idols and there were different things they were worship and blood was involved in it and cutting was involved in it with animals with rituals with other children so this was kind of like very almost i mean i don't want to say cold but it anybody who's not a believer and they just hear the reason you know that god asked abraham to circumcise as a symbol of the covenant would be like, what kind of cult are y'all and, in? And what and what and what about linking that back? Like well, I think it was Shirley pointed out communion. What if Jesus was saying, This is my blood? So that we know we don't have to do the blood part anymore. That my blood and my body are in a sharing, a meal together that is what our daily reminder is remember this every do this every time you eat and drink to remember me i think we need to plug that idea right back in to the covenant of circumcision and what it actually meant from the human point of view i think that's not just that's not just the first sunday of the month doing the little ritual in church whenever you eat and drink Yes, whenever you eat and drink, what if that is our circumcision? That's a great point I was going to mention. I have my Yeti here with Julia, and on the back, I have a scripture. Oh. Jeremiah 29, 11 to 14, and it says, and that's my favorite scripture, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future then i will call upon then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and i will listen to you you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart i will be found by you declares the lord and i will bring you back from captivity i will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. I love that scripture. He has good things for me, no matter what. I just have to have him and seek him. So I have that on my coffee cup, so I will remember it when I'm drinking my coffee could it be too um that maybe at that time that was their limited understanding of what a sacrifice would be like that yeah, it had absolutely. to be circumcision because there was no other category for them to like sealing a covenant, covenant. because the cutting a covenant that word was always cut that's what you did to make a, a promise yeah right mm-hmm. Or to validate, to seal a promise. It wasn't ma- making it as much as it was sealing it, you know, like we would put a stamp. So, Which is interesting because through this Bible, this short hour, I've gone from like, this makes no sense. It sounds such like a cult to the perspective of, wow, God met them where they were at in their limited cultural understanding of what a covenant that he had to request this very bizarre and traumatic thing. Yeah. But that, that was their limited understanding of, of life of any, like there was no category of a jetty with a Bible verse or communion or baptism. It was like, we have to do something to seal it in physically with blood. So I, I don't know. You've taken me in a roller coaster of a ride today of being like, what in the world are we learning? And why are we talking about circumcision? Because that's outrageous to, huh? God is this 
he meets us where we're at in this limited perspective and cultural and views and understanding of what we have at the time that and it, it's also encouraging because it has evolved right we're no longer viewing circumcision the way that these people did back in the hebrew bible like we're kind of like yeah right um so i am grateful that people's faith evolves and that also god meets us where our faith is evolving you know not even in the cultural setting did everybody understand it because even his own wife called him a bloody husband in reference that was Moses' to, wife yeah zipporah yeah. yes um i don't remember the exact yeah that's setting a, and what a very interesting story but she was not Jewish, if I recall, Sephora was from a no, foreign. She was from Midi. She was a daughter of a Midian priest. Yeah, and so um, this the circumcision, the act of cir- circumcision, and having to circumcise her sons and and all that just absolutely it didn't set well with her. Yeah. She didn't understand. That. Yeah. No. Well, we're, uh, Renee, did you have a comment? I saw you pop up a second ago. Yeah, I did. Something that Erica made me think of in from history. For a long time, I know in different histories of different countries, they used to do a blood pack with their hands. They both cut their palm of their hands and then slap their hands together. So it kind of makes sense that they would be used to something like that mm-hmm. type of thing for a covenant mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and I think that for all of this it's so helpful to see the cultural wrapping paper but I don't think very often we ask the question so what is that for us and and that's what that's what we did today we looked at this at this grid, you were you were the um, the the unfortunate beneficiaries, I think, of my rather methodical mind, where I like bullet points and charts. So you get that pretty frequently, but it's just I saw patterns here, and I thought it would be so wonderful to think about how God is there in the trauma and not the trauma during the trauma, and then always in that last column it was always good it was always good god always was there in the trauma and the result was good and so we're going to leave it there for today and i will post that question in the discussion group i love you remember no class until january happy thanksgiving merry christmas thank you for your grace for giving me this time that i need i love you Everyone, see you in January. Bye. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Thank you, Gail. You're welcome.